안녕하세요. I'm Sarah. And I'm Grace. We're Asian K-drama fans who love to find the answers to all of our and your Asian drama questions. We cover everything from silly topics to sensitive and serious issues that come up as we binge. We'll also share some Korean and Chinese language tips, as well as our own experiences as diaspora Asians living in the UK and US. Join us as we delve into the details and context of the dramas that we all love. 안녕하세요. Welcome to another edition of Afternoon at Asks. And we are very excited today because we've got a guest with us, Chloe Hadjibatheo. Welcome, Chloe. Thanks for having me. Yay, we're very excited to have you. Um, so we invited Chloe to come on to talk to us as she's the journalist behind a new BBC Sounds podcast called Burning Sun, which covers a K-pop scandal featuring at its heart a Gangnam club of the same name. Um, so for those of you who aren't aware, the BBC has its own extensive podcast and radio show library that it shares out on its BBC Sounds channel. There's an app you can download to get all the episodes and there's tons of music, podcasts, current affairs, comedy, sport, basically all the topics that the BBC produces content for. Um, so I do recommend you go and check it out if you haven't already. There's there's loads there. Um, but we most definitely want to heartily recommend that you check out Burning Sun, which is a six part series that covers the scandal, but also the wider context of Korean celebrity, feminism, anti-feminism and what it's like to live as a k-pop celebrity as well as a young woman in korean society today for those of you who've been with us for a while you'll know that we've touched on some pretty light-hearted topics so far but sarah and i always wanted to include some more hard-hitting current themes for this reason we wanted to give some content warnings to this episode um, because for some people this these topics may not be suitable we would like to warn you that there will be discussion of sexual assault, rape, drug use, and suicide. And also, we'd like to make a disclaimer that often as Western, uh, Westerners, um, we will be using the term rape uh, within our conception that includes the idea of consent and not necessarily the technical Korean definition under Korean law. We're going to cover the series a little like our Nunas do, uh, a deep dive. So namely, we will get to know Chloe a little and have her tell us about the series, but keep it generic and non-spoilery. Then if you want to drop off and give the series a listen and then rejoin us for the second part of the podcast, we will talk about the content of the series in a more in-depth way. So first, Chloe, do you want to give us a little introduction of yourself and I know you mentioned in your podcast that you aren't really a K-pop fan, but you enjoy Korean literature, cinema, and food. Um, but have you watched any Korean dramas? I have watched a couple of Korean dramas, although I, I have to say I'm such an audio person. I don't watch that much TV. I watch movies, uh -huh. but I'm not a massive TV person. I spend all my life listening to podcasts. So, <laughs> so I don't... I don't I don't dive into dramas that much. I love Korean cinema. I love Korean literature. Um, I've read lots and lots of Korean books. Um, most recently, Greek Lessons, which is a great one if anyone wants to have a listen. Um, I love The Vegetarian. And there's been several other sort of dark murder mystery books that I've got into that 
don't spring the titles don't spring to mind right now but I, I, Korean literature is amazing for me I think that's my number one thing and second is the food so I lived in Asia for years and um, in Japan for about three years and there's loads of Korean restaurants in Japan and I visited Korea briefly in the 90s and um, and London is just massively Korean food crazy at the moment so I eat a lot and I love spice so I eat lots and lots of Korean food as well yay I love Korean food well I think we're quite lucky in London and and the UK actually for Korean food at the moment oh we're very lucky yeah so to give you a bit more sort of broader background beyond my food tastes I've um I've been at the BBC almost 20 years and I started out in news I uh, have covered all sorts of topics and worked in the BBC's uh, overseas offices based in the states and in the Middle East in Cairo and Jerusalem and in Washington DC traveled all around the world covering stories um uh, really everything. I've, I've done a lot of work on Greece. My background is Greek. I speak the language. So I've covered the crisis there quite a lot. Mainly human interest stories, um, uncovering wrongdoing, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and then about two years ago, I uh, did a big podcast about the Syrian war, specifically the story of the guy who helped set up the white helmets, the rescuers in Syria who pulled people out of the rubble and a lot of the disinformation that followed him and plagued him in his life and his tragic and mysterious death and so that was on the same podcast um uh the same podcast thread actually as burning sun so if you go and find burning sun you'll find it in the intrigue uh podcast thread and it's the series that that preceded burning sun and actually um just before i started making this series about syria i was working on another bbc program current affairs program and we were covering the topic of k-pop and why it's such a phenomenon and it was around the same time as these k-pop stars um were being charged for some pretty heinous crimes and me and my executive producer kavita were just we were pretty floored by the story Mm. Um, and so it was it was bubbling around in the background for me, really, while I was making this other podcast about Syria. And so once I'd laid that one to rest, I I picked up picked up the, the career story again. And I really wanted to see if I could if I could if there was anything in it that I could do, that I could make it work as a series. Yeah. And you did. You totally did. So as you might know, uh, me and Grace are huge K-drama fans and I actually only started watching them in the pandemic. Um, And quite a few of us uh, on the podcast and patrons of the podcast were similar. So I actually wasn't aware of this scandal when it was happening. Um, However, I've just wrapped watching a drama called uh, Taxi Driver. So there's Taxi Driver and Taxi Driver 2. It's basically a vigilante action drama which, by the way, I bang on a lot about because it's really good. <laughs> Not enough people watch it. Um, so generally, so Taxi Driver itself features cases taken from real life cases in South Korea, and it gives them the satisfactory ending that we want to see via these vigilante team. Uh, and one of the last cases of Taxi Driver 2 was a story of a Gangnam nightclub called Black Sun. And as you can probably guess, features the story of Burning Sun. So by then, I know every story is being, you know, on a on a real case. And I thought, oh, my God, so this is actually a real case then. And I Googled it and um, it's so dark and twisted. Uh, and I was just so, so, so shocked that this was kind of, you know, because obviously, as you allude to in the series, K-pop has this really fresh um, kind of clean image. Um, and then underneath it was was all of this that was happening and it was and it was you know and it's kind of a circle because it was it was enabling it to happen enabling it to be covered up 
um, but enabling it to, to carry on as well. Um, so when I saw on my social media, this, this came up um, that you had done this uh, series, I immediately picked it up. I binged all the five episodes that were available, loved it equal parts fascinated and disturbed and then there was a gap between five and six and in that gap I messaged uh Chloe and said please can you come on our podcast and I was so excited when she said uh she said yes so um Grace did you did, were you aware of this um actually uh you'd think I would have been <laughs> as a Korean American and well actually I didn't pick pick um, K-pop back up until a, f- a couple of years ago. But, um, you know, in my, I, I guess, middle school years, I was a big <laughs> K-pop fan of the kind of original K-pop stars like H.O.T. and Sateji. So I, but I didn't hear about this because I wasn't following K-pop at the time. Um, and Chloe, I was, I was struck by how you mentioned in your podcast that you covered the story briefly four years ago. So was that four years ago, like that period you were, you were talking about before you started the serious story? That's right. Yeah. We, ah. we basically, we picked it up to say, because it's, because it's quite amazing really when you look at it, that Korean music, actually, I mean, K-Wave is about this, but, but it's really that Korean music has transcended this kind of English language monopoly because everywhere you go in the world people are listening to music in English but somehow Korea has uh, uh, k-pop has transcended this and you get stadia full of young people in Colorado and Birmingham (laughs) and you know all of these kind of (laughs) random places singing in Korean and you're like how has this happened Mm -hmm. it's just crazy when did this happen and how and it's amazing Um, and so I, I was quite fascinated by this and when we started looking at it we also uncovered this this scandal that was happening just by coincidence at the same time mm-hmm. and I mean it's worth pointing out as well that the scandal isn't about k-pop so the overwhelming majority right. of k-pop is is not tainted in any way and k-pop stars are genuine clean-cut wholesome people as far as we know right. there's this isn't really about an industry producing um, you know, abusers, but rather some abusers using the industry to enable their abuse. Right, right. Um, and I, I was wondering, you know, because this is also a period where, you know, the Me Too um, movement and, and stories about, you know, sexual abuse have been coming to light kind of globally. I, I wonder, you know, w- was it because you were already working on a story about K-pop that this stuck with you, that it set, left such an impression, or was it something else? Well, I think I think the thing that struck me was how many stars were involved, because these mm. scandals have been rupturing everywhere, you know, in the UK, in America, you know, Harvey Weinstein in America, right. and all these different people. But in Korea, the, the group of stars was quite big. And there were three very big name stars, mm-hmm. particularly, and their friends who were involved in this. But other people were sort of uh, involved with them on the peripheries. They were never charged in the end, but were involved in these groups where these messages were being sent. It was there were a lot of stars involved and it, it seemed to me that there was something really bizarre going on and it was also quite mysterious how the whole thing had come to light it was a set of kind of bizarre coincidences that meant that this particular Korean pop star's mobile phone fell into a whistleblower's hands right. somebody's hand like how often does that happen that you get to look at a you know celebrity's personal private mobile phone 
group chats. Like right. it just never yes. happens, right? No, Who knows what no, we'd find yeah. if we looked at other celebrities' <laughs> group chats? But it was it was the set of these kind of incredible coincidences that had mm-hmm. enabled us to find out what was going on in, among this group yeah. of abusers. Right. So why do you think uh, our listeners should listen to the series? Like what kind of themes do you think are particular ones that um, really kind of stand out for you? Well, first made of all, you want to wish to first of all, I would just say it's a cracking yarn. It's just a great yeah. story, right? Like leave aside everything else. It's just like a, oh my God, and what happened next? And what happened next? And I hope that's what yes. you get from it. You just, it, it's right. some amazing characters. You get to know some amazing and interesting characters and these bizarre things that they uncovered and that happened to them. And like I say, very early on, you find out that this mobile phone fell into um, various people's hands who decided to uncover this abuse. I mean, to... to fairly great expense to themselves I have to say and risk-taking to themselves this whistleblower has suffered quite extensively um, for for bringing this this story out and they've had to be protected with official whistleblower status by the Korean state Um, but uh, so I hope that you'd listen first and foremost just because it's a fascinating story Um, and secondly I think because I mean it is something that is universal that people who have power particularly men I have to say around the world who have power and are able to use that power to manipulate and abuse people for their own pleasure and that's what this is a story about these people who thought they were too big to ever be touched Um, and also it's a story about women who are battling against discrimination and abuse and I think this is the same story for women in every society, whether you're living in Afghanistan or living in London, you know, none of us live in a society that's fair and equal. And all of us have our own battles towards equality uh, to a greater or lesser extent. And so it's a story about these women in Korea who are fighting these battles and are faced with all sorts of challenges, including a country where a, a big anti feminist movement has has grown and there's a big big pushback against feminism in Korea so I think it's also if you're interested in Korea if you like k-drama if you like k-pop if you like all these things this is a side to the country that you may not have heard of may not have seen and so it kind of gives you a more in-depth knowledge of of what it's like to live in Korea yes absolutely yeah it did all of those but yeah at the top (laughs) As I said, I I binged it. In fact, it was kind of classic. One of those like I really need to get going with this thing. I'm like, oh, no, I'll listen to another episode. <laughs> I just put off what I was gonna do. I want to find out what happens. <laughs> right, next. right. Um, yeah, yeah. So we're always interested in the behind the scenes of producing mm-hmm. a show like this. How how long did it take um, for it to all come together? How big was the team? Um, you worked with, and, and how many times did you visit Korea to complete production? So, so it's a really good question, and I'm glad you asked because actually um, I have this phenomenal Korean production team working with me. And obviously, I don't speak Korean, and you know, as I say quite early on in the podcast, I'm not an expert in Korea. So I was really dependent on this Korean production team, producers, translators, advisors, who were able to kind of guide me through this story, and were also able to to help me get to know. Uh, the protagonists so it's a really sensitive story and it took a while to persuade people to to talk to me so the first trip I took out to Korea I actually 
to, I went to Korea to work on a completely different story uh, in order to go and meet people in the evenings and see whether they would be prepared to talk to me if I were to take this on. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, it, it, it was not easy. It was a slow process. And I think it would never have worked if I hadn't had face-to-face meetings with people. Uh, and so my yeah. first trip out there was probably at the end of 2021. I want to say, and um, and so it was quite a while ago. And then I took another three trips last year out there. Uh, well, mm-hmm. two trips last year and one trip at the beginning of this year to to interview people and uh, and you know get to know them and get their stories. So it was a very slow process, and it really would not have been possible without a phenomenal Korean production team behind it all. Um, also advising me on the culture, to be honest, and 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 I'm quite open about my ignorance in this series. There are several times where I'm like, wait a minute, what? And Koreans are explaining to me, look, this is the way it is in Korea. And, and so lots of things come as a surprise to me, as I think right. they might to our listeners as well. Yes. Yeah. And, and also to me, I'm sure, <laughs> yeah, even though I my family's from there. I, I mean, because I grew up in the US, you know, I, I'm sure I would miss a lot of these nuances also. So you mentioned that your your production team, your great um, Korean production team advised you on cultural aspects and things. Um, that, were there like uniquely Korean concerns and sensibilities that you had to learn to take into account in approaching um, the, the witnesses or the protagonists um, of the story. Um, w- when, when you were talking about it, it when I was listening uh, to the podcast, it, it brought to mind some of the scenes in the, in the recent movie, She Said, about the New York Times journalist who worked to break the Harvey Weinstein story and how like a lot of that work was that background, you know, we have to get these witnesses to like be comfortable speaking with us. So I imagine in Korea, you know, there's slightly different considerations um, and you know concerns that you have to keep in mind when you're doing that can you can you share you know any of the ones in particular yeah I mean so 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 the first thing that was a real surprise to me was you know I thought right at the beginning um, uh, I, I mean I was I was first and foremost trying to understand the story and how it unraveled but it seemed to me quite early on that there was a feminist component to this because a lot of the people Mm -hmm. who'd done the unraveling were women Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I I hadn't realized how sensitive it is in Korea to call yourself a feminist that if you say I am a feminist you open yourself to horrific attacks I mean you know in the west there are people who might attack you for calling yourself a feminist but frankly not that many and there Mm -hmm. are plenty of men who might call themselves feminists right. in the UK, for example. Yes. But yeah. I hadn't really appreciated what it would mean for these women to say, I am a feminist on air, uh, how much courage that takes in Korea. Uh, and so wow. it was little things like that. So, so you know, saying to a woman, so were you a feminist? You know, or a question that contained the word feminism. And then there would be all sorts of strange expressions and kind of looks between my production team and 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 the interviewee and it was something that took time and was slow and I had to it it took a while for me to catch up on the the kind of nuances that were going on I hadn't realized there was this backlash um and and how how people were being attacked and how what it's like to be trolled in Korea it's not the same I'm a journalist I get trolled I've had all sorts of stuff printed about me it's nowhere near 
anything mm. like what it's like to be trolled in Korea. Um, yeah. So trying to understand what these people had been through and the reasons that they were so hesitant to speak to the media and to open up themselves up again mm. and their stories yeah. again, it took yeah. a while for me to catch on with what was going on um, and a while for me to build up trust with these people as well. I mean, they don't know me. I'm coming from London. I don't speak their language. Right. Uh, you know, it took a while for them to understand that I was somebody that, you know, was wasn't coming in for a quick hit and a, um, a big yeah. sensationalist story. I was there for the long haul and I was going to tell things slowly and in a more nuanced way. So, yeah, it took a while. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so you've, you've kind of partly answered this, but you, you interview as part of the show two Korean journalists. And as a Western journalist yourself, did you find... What were the differences that you found between how they have to operate in, in Korea versus how you would you are able to operate, uh, you know, working as part of the BBC? Do you think it was easier or harder tackling this topic as a Western journalist? Oh, God, it's really difficult. <laughs> it's really it's, a, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. This series. It was oh, really, wow, really? It was very, very difficult Well, because also. So I, I'm not, you, you know, I have somebody between me and the interviewee. So normally yeah. uh, most of my interviews would be in English. Um, not all of them but a lot of them and usually my protagonists speak English and so I'm able to get quite close to them and have my own conversations with them and this time I always had to have a go-between which was challenging yeah. occasionally we'd have long chats on uh Kakao Talk which is this app uh, equivalent mm -hmm. of WhatsApp or something in Korea and we would be doing it all through Papagol which is a translation tool <laughs> so we'd be sending yeah. each other these and you, you're constantly going mm, is this what they mean uh, is this a weird yeah. translation so there were lots of things like that but also here's something funny so in Korea it's very very normal when you do an interview to say can I have all your questions beforehand and at the BBC we don't do that we don't give our oh. questions ahead of time apart from anything else okay. I don't know what I'm going to ask until I start talking to you you might say something completely random right. and I want to follow up with another question so I can give sort of general topics that I'm going to cover these are the, the areas that I'd like to talk to you about but I can't give you a list of questions and so that was that's yeah. a classic one in Korea everybody's like can I have the list of questions ahead of time and so that was that was one very obvious one where we, we weren't able to to do that um but yeah I think these Korean journalists that I worked with particularly the one that you hear on air Lee Hyun Chair she's um she's used to working with western production teams and so mm -hmm. she was aware already right. some of the pitfalls she was able to predict some of the some of the issues that I would have and sort of jump in and and help me oh so for uh, for those parts where we hear her that that's her actual voice that's her actual voice oh, okay all right yeah no no that's Lee. because I I was thinking wow she has very yes. unaccented English so then I was impressed when she was going no, back that's and forth not... <laughs> between the English and the Korean and yeah it's the interviews that are actors and okay. she's she's not an interview so she, right. no she that's real that those bits are all like um recorded in the moment mm -hmm. um yeah and that's what so, it seemed like um, yeah all the interviews are in translation with actors playing them, apart from um, Wonyeon, actually, the final interview um, in the last episode. I don't want spoiler alert, but she she lives in the States. And so her English was very, very good. Mm -hmm. um, the feminist who we hear about in the last episode, right. she she was in her original voice as well. OK, yeah. but yeah. Um, Almost everybody else was uh, had to be played by an actor because the interviews were the original interviews were in Korean. 
you mentioned at the beginning of each episode that that voice actors are and and you've uh, mentioned it um, earlier in this pod um, that voice actors are speaking the translated words of the people involved in the story because um, they mostly spoke uh, to your team and you in Korean. And I was actually really, I was very impressed by, um, by those actors. And um, I noticed in the show notes and things that, um, that they're mostly uh, Korean or East Asian diaspora actors. I don't know if uh, you had a big uh, part in, in picking actors. Was this an intentional thing for your production team to find Korean and other East Asian diaspora actors, maybe more accurately convey the original speaker's words and emotions? Yeah, I mean, we were really concerned about authenticity and we wanted to um, be as authentic mm -hmm. as we could. And so it was a real conscious decision to try. I mean, we would have liked to have an all Korean or Korean descent mm -hmm. cast, um, but, um, there's actually yeah. a tiny pool of, of actors in the yes. UK of Korean descent, as we discovered. I mean, we would have been a lot better off going to America where there's such a big <laughs> Korean right. diaspora. Um, in the UK, it's smaller and fewer of those are actors, bizarrely. And so um, we have a BBC drama unit. And so I went to them because I'm not a specialist in drama and I've never directed actors mm -hmm. before. And so we, we collaborated with the BBC drama unit who helped us in um, sourcing the actors and helped us in, um, I wrote the briefs, but they helped brief the actors and helped direct them in studio. And we were, you know, I was there for the whole thing and I was able to, to kind of give the background to these actors. And in lots of cases, they, um, where it was appropriate, they were able to see and hear a little bit of the original mm -hmm. interview mm -hmm. so they could feel yeah. and get a bit more in character. Um, but I'm glad you say that. So it's a kind of risk. It's a difficult thing, not being able to use yes. the original right. voices. And in the past where I've made one-off documentaries in Korea or in anywhere else where the first language is in English, we often do what we call a voiceover. So you hear the original yeah. voice for a little bit mm -hmm. and then you'll have an actor speaking the words over them. But I was concerned that in such a long uh, piece of audio, you know, it's in it, overall, yeah. it's about three hours of broadcasting right. the series that you feel mm. kind of a distance yeah. from the, from the speaker, if you hear the Korean voice and then, and so I decided to, to just lose the Korean voices altogether and and use the actors so that after a while my, my hope was that you would kind of forget that this isn't the original voice mm -hmm. the words are their their right. words their you know the meaning is their meaning and so I was hoping that after a while it wouldn't matter to you so much that you're hearing an actor's voice rather than the original yeah, yeah. the original voice. I found it quite immersive mm. actually um the the fact that it was in this kind of unbroken narrative in English, even though we knew, you know, off off the top, you know, this is going to be actors, you know, I, I felt they were quite compelling. Yeah, I mean, it was a risk. So I don't know anyone else. Who's ever done <laughs> right, <this. right. laughs> so, well, you know, we, we decided to kind of experiment and, and, and try this. So I'm glad I'm glad it worked. Yeah. No, I'm no, I'm really impressed that you did it. And I'm really grateful as well that you did use your own like used own voices to do the parts as well. I think um it worked really well. 
Um, so I hope that we've covered enough to pique your interest in listening to this series if you haven't already. We've put a link to the show in the show notes and we really, really recommend you listening to this series first because Chloe and her team have done such a great job of telling the story with cliffhangers and flashbacks. Um, so if you're a K-drama fan, you're going to really you're going to find it compelling um i'm sure so each episode is only 30 minutes long so it's less <laughs> commitment than your average k-drama so if you sold it or if we sold it to you we really recommend you stop this podcast now and go and check out burning sun on bbc sounds and then come back and listen to the second half of the podcast um but before we get to the spoiler section we thought it would be good to have our korean language section with grace so grace what are we going to learn this time so I thought um, it would be topical to talk about the Korean word for hidden camera, um, molka. Uh, molka is an abbreviation of mole camera, mole camera, which is a casual kind of word for a secret or a sneaky camera. Um, but I learned recently that the more official term is pulpop camera or pulpop camera chadyang. Um, because molka is a word that came out of a hidden camera prank show. And sometimes it can be understood to have like a mischievous or silly connotation instead of conveying the very serious meaning and consequences of the, um, you know, spy cam problem um, and the secret filming abuses uh, that Korean women are dealing with. Um, I also... Um, wanted to go over again the pronunciation for Gangnam um, because we talk about a club in Gangnam um, called Burning Sun. Um, and, and it's a word that a lot of people are very familiar with, but not have not always heard the correct pronunciation for because of Sai's um, Gangnam style song um, from yes. ages ago. Um, but it's a, it's a soft A, Gangnam. Um, and it actually means south of the river. Gangnam. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, right. So again, uh, the casual word for secret camera is? Molka. 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 Mm -hmm. And the more official term is? Pulpop camera or pulpop camera charyong. Charyong is the filming part. So pulpop means illegal. Right. And then camera is, you know, the Koreanized English <laughs> for camera. And then charyong is uh, filming. So pulpop um, camera. And, uh, and a kangnam again for us? Oh, kang kangnam. Kang Great. Thanks, Grace. So now we're into the spoiler section. And just to reiterate again, we will be discussing the content of the series. And there are topics that people might find hard to listen to. So namely, again, sexual assault, rape, drug use and suicide. Please bear this in mind as we carry on with the rest of the podcast. Right. So what we wanted to do in this section was explore some of the themes that came up in the series. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting was the story of Oh Se-yun, who was uh, Jung Jun-han's huge fan, and her own personal journey that she went through. Um, and I think idol fandom, which you again, you said in the, in the podcast, is, is quite a unique thing to K-pop. Um, and we K-dramas know how, how huge it is. We have a we have a whole K-drama rom-com, for example, devoted to it called Her Private Life. But this um, this one sadly didn't have 
a good ending for this particular fan with her idol. Um, and how much do you think that formative experience then went on to colour her own thoughts and feelings about Korean men and having relationships with them? I think a great deal. So, um, so she's a really fascinating character. She's a really, really strong personality and strong woman. And I think, you know, she devoted that strength and attention and intellect towards her fandom. And so this, this yes. was a, a new word for me, sondok, which means like sort of fanatic super fan. These are the absolute sort of pinnacle of, 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 of K-pop fans. These are the people that devote themselves. And in a way, it's a kind of identity. And I think mm. her life really revolved around her fandom. And she became known. She had um, a kind of mini celebrity as a, um, a massive fan yes. as one of the biggest okay. devotees of Chung Jun Young. And so she even makes it at some point into, um, into a TV show, which is about his fans. And she gets to read this poem out to him, uh, you know, live on air. Right. And so she's connected to him. He knows who she is. This is like, yes. this is a fandom that is, that goes above and beyond. And, and, you know, she kind of grows out of this a little bit and, um, and is uh, uh, then goes on to be studying uh, documentary making at university when the scandal breaks. And as I said, she's a really intelligent woman and also a, a deeply ethical person. So for her, this was such a horrific shock mm -hmm. that somebody that she loved so much and that she saw part of what she admired about him was that she believed he was a really good person. This was something yes. that was important to her, that he was a good, decent person. Mm -hmm. And so uncovering the fact that he wasn't was a real kind of, just shook her hugely. And she started questioning whether her fandom could have in some way enabled him, whether fans mm -hmm. like her had kind of propped him up and yeah. helped give him cover for this abuse. And so, yeah. you know, she started examining herself and examining the concept of fandom. Um, she made a documentary called Sondok about um, this, uh, whether fans in some way are responsible for, for the celebrities that they, that they support. And she interviewed loads of her friends and family. And it turns out that loads and loads of her friends had had the same experience, that people that they had admired have ended up being mm -hmm. not nice people, being accused of all sorts of things and her mother too was a fan of a Korean actor who it turned out had been really kind of gropey and and not very nice to women oh. and so um it really changed her fundamentally and I think sort of pushed her towards examining Korean women more more broadly and how how what they put up with and what they put up with from Korean men more specifically and whether or not mm. Korean men can be trusted so it was something that she kind of extrapolated and 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 started looking at more broadly in society um and I think I mean obviously this was also in the backdrop of Korean women being spied on and lots of other scandals that were coming out at the time and had been coming out since about 2015 in Korea there have been lots of scandals coming out that have formed a kind of growing Me Too movement and feminist movement. Women have been brave enough to say publicly, you know, I've been abused and accused famous people, people with a big public profile. Mm -hmm. And so in the backdrop of all of this, realizing that this has happened to her as well and that the celebrity that she had supported was also one of these kind of um, abusers. 
um, it kind of puts her off men more generally. And she becomes part of a growing movement of Korean women who decide that they don't want relationships with Korean men because they've lost trust and lost faith in Korean men. And, you know, it's important to say not all Korean men are like this. I met um, lots of Korean men who were part of this story. Um, uh, a lawyer who represented these victims in court, who had changed career only because he wanted to, to help female victims mm -hmm. of sexual violence in Korea. And another, another man who was instrumental in helping the story get out. Lots and lots of men are not like this. Korean men are not like yes. this. But mm -hmm. because there are so many stories of widespread abuse and of men filming women and all kinds of things and, and of violence towards women and aggression towards women and um, gaslighting of women. Mm -hmm. But um, I think there is this growing movement of Korean women who say, I don't want to have a relationship anymore with a Korean man. I've lost faith and I've lost trust. I don't know how to tell who's a nice guy and who's not. Mm -hmm. Um. Oseon mentions in one of the episodes that um, neither she, and you said this, but um, neither she nor 90% of her women friends are interested in marriage at this point. That 90% actually really surprised me. It was, you know, it's a very large number. Um, but it's of her yeah. circle, right? Right, so right, she's yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, that's what my question was. <laughs> right. right. My question is, um, yeah, I mean, clearly she's kind of in more of an activist and feminist circle. So, um, you know, did you get a sense um, of like how how much of this attitude like has seeped into kind of broader um, Korean society or um, broader um, views of of marriage among Korean women? Well, so, so there's a massive problem in Korea now, and it's something that the government has mentioned several times and is actively tackling, which is that the birth rate has fallen below a replacement rate, which means that the population in Korea is actually shrinking. It's quite unique. Most places in the world, the population is growing, even if only slightly. For in Korea, it's shrinking so fast that there's a real risk now that um, provincial areas and provincial towns are dying out and not being replaced. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a it's an existential crisis, really, because, you know, we're getting to a point where uh, the, the elderly population so outstrips the young population that this imbalance means that it's very difficult for young people to be able to provide for the older generation. Right. Um, and, and, and the government is doing all kinds of things to try and incentivize um, people to have children. But the truth is that for Korean women, there are still lots and lots of disincentives in society. And it's not just, so there is this movement, um, I think it's called the 4B movement of women who don't want to get married and don't want to have children and, and don't even want to have relationships with Korean men. But this is still quite a small section of Korean society. Mm. It's not but by any means the majority of women. But what is more widespread is that lots of Korean women, uh, it seems, are saying, you know, if I have a child, I'll be expected to leave my job or I'm not guaranteed yes. the same position if I come back from maternity leave. Right. Child care provision is not great in Korea. Um, it's still the case, I suppose, everywhere in the world that the women are, are, are considered to be the primary 
carer of children but in yeah. Korea it's even more so that the woman is supposed to care for her in-laws and yeah. her children right. <laughs> and maintain the household and so the idea that she might be able to then work it becomes more and more difficult and also mm -hmm. in Korean workplaces the culture seems to be that there is an expectation that employees will go out and and have social uh yes. evenings yeah. after the yeah. if you've got children that becomes harder and so it becomes harder to maintain your position in company if you can't join the socials and and there are lots and lots of things society is still geared towards women basically stopping their jobs and their careers or at least not having a professional career trajectory mm -hmm. once they've had children yeah. and so for lots of women they say well why would I want to do that you know, yeah. of course, some women just really want children, but for other women, it's a trade-off. Yeah. And they may be waiting until much later in life to have children, or they may just be saying, I, I might not, I might choose a career over choosing to have children. And this is being reflected in the numbers of people who are having kids. There's also uh, lots of young men who, for various economic reasons, uh, are also choosing not to have children, or at least not until later. Right. And so all of this is conspiring and, and some of the ways that the government has been trying to incentivize people to have children have been criticized by women. So one of the ways they were doing was by um, having maps of, um, uh, of eligible young women who were of reproductive age. So you could go into map, a map and find where these young women of a reproductive age live. Um, and women were saying, hang on a minute, we are not, you know, baby making factories. This is not the way you can't do this. Another way was that the government um, has started making uh, abortion more and more difficult. And again, women say we're not taps of babies that you can just turn on and off. Our bodies can't be used in this way. You can't ban abortion in in a in a in an attempt to make the population bigger. So yeah. women have been very critical of some of the ways that the government has tried to incentivize. But the government is also, to be fair, trying to help women with all kinds of bursaries and childcare. They're trying slowly to to make. Uh, it easier for women but there's still a long way to go yeah well I mean for me uh, I, there are stats obviously that show basically in societies where men take a greater proportion of the childcare, their demographic rates are not as bad as those so it's not just career obviously Taiwan has just has has a has a really big problem uh it's similar a demographic problem China Japan so you know these East Asian countries with the the Confucian kind of backgrounds um that as you say favor women and and we're seeing again you know like these themes that are echoed in K-dramas so one of the most popular ones at the moment that's airing currently is King the Land and one of the key um, well, one of the side characters, she's married to a man. She has a full-time job. Her in-laws constantly come into the flat and go, so where's my dinner? And she has to drop everything. Right. And he's lounging there on the, on the sofa watching TV. She's, you know, and even her daughter is sitting there, like looking at her dad going like, dad, like you don't do much, do you? Really quite <laughs> I love the daughter. <laughs> she's like eight years yeah, old. <laughs> she's like, you're such a loser, dad. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, her life is, you know, that's reflecting, reflecting reality. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a struggle everywhere, right? I mean, women uh, in Europe and in America are always complaining that their husbands don't share 50-50 in the workload. And, yeah. But I think yeah. when, when it's kind of, um, when it's so ingrained in society and when it's kind of condoned or, or backed 
by the way in which society yeah. is organized, I think it makes it worse. Right. And I mean, uh, I yeah. think a big part of it is also the, the cost of raising a child in, in Korea is so high and, and not just uh, like the cost of raising a child, but to, um, to make sure your child has a like comfortable and successful life. It's so competitive. Mm. It's so mm. competitive. So I feel like a lot of the attitude, at least that I've picked up on, is, you know, why would I have a child just to like make their life miserable? You know, because you that's know, what I've heard. Right. That, that people study, you know, young people study. So when I first came to this, I was looking at K-pop and K-pop schools. So if you become, if you want to become a K-pop star, you go to these kind of K-pop academies, mm -hmm. which work you incredibly hard. So, you know, from six in the morning till eight, nine at night, they have these kids who want to be K-pop stars dancing and singing and doing all the stuff. And I was really shocked by this. But then I spoke to Koreans who said to me, well, you know, even if you're not a K-pop wannabe, if you're just living a normal life, you've got all these crammer schools and sports right. and music and languages and after school clubs. And you don't get a lot of chance to play and just be a sort of ordinary kid hanging out, getting bored. Yeah. You don't get that kind of luxury. So yeah, that's what I, I, I was surprised by that. So I, I thought these K-pop academies were terrible until I find out that actually most Korean kids have this kind of upbringing. Was it very yeah. different for you in America? Um, yeah, <laughs> very different. Um, I mean, I, I, I did have Korean parents, so they, you know, they probably pushed me academically more than, you know, a lot of my peers were pushed by their parents. But um, yeah, nothing, nothing like going to cram school until, you know, uh, I mean, some of these dramas, uh, they might exaggerate but it seems like you know it's not uncommon to to be out at cram school until 10 or later wow. at night so yeah, that's so crazy that is crazy I mean my kids are always complaining that I've booked too much stuff for them and they're doing things like forest school where they're just digging up worms and whittling wood and having fun and they're like oh mom I'm exhausted from, from you know having too much fun so you know <laughs> Yeah. It's true. It is a different, it is a different, like, I remember I staged a protest because uh, my mum was trying to get us to go to Chinese school. I don't know if you had the same thing, Grace. So I had to go to Chinese school on Sunday. Um, and then me and, me and my brother basically staged a protest and said, we can't possibly go to school six days a week. <laughs> like, it's just too much. And, I, and I my mum relayed. My parents wanted me yeah. to go to Greek school and I protested now. Yeah. I regret it horribly and wish they'd made <laughs> me study harder. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. We didn't, ha I didn't have a separate Korean school um, uh, back when I was growing up. It was just like after lunch at church, um, they, they had like a little classes, but it was nothing all that in depth. And I also wish That's I had good. studied harder with, with Korean. <laughs> so did the story uh, pan out the way you expected it when you first decided that you would dig a little deeper into you know, what happened with these K-pop stars. You did, you did mention that you kept being surprised but, <laughs> uh, in terms of the way that the story played out. So um, I just, you know, when you approach a story, you just don't know how far you're going to get. And right. I wasn't sure whether, first of all, whether anybody would talk to me, including the journalists that had helped uncover the story because they had been so, they had suffered so much from attacks 
trolling attacks mm-hmm. um, during during the um, when the story first broke, that I was concerned they wouldn't talk to me, but I was very lucky that they did. And then also mm-hmm. I was able to see the contents of this K-pop star's phone. And so I wasn't sure if I would get to that as well. And so right. seeing that, um, I guess mm-hmm. I... I I was shocked. I, I, you know, I knew that these men had abused women. I guess I wasn't, I wasn't that aware of how many of the women, uh, that lots of the women were not conscious when they were sexually abused. And that came as a shock. And it came as a shock to me that this was so widespread in Korea and that drugging women at Burning Sun nightclub seemed to be something that was quite standard. So um, without too much of a spoiler alert, um, uh, some of the employees at Burning Sun nightclub describe how women are systematically drugged and raped. And what was surprising to me was I, I, I had a good idea that they might tell me this when I arranged to meet them. And we meet in a restaurant. And so we're sitting down and ordering food and stuff like that. And one of them turns around and says to my producer, I, I don't really get why this is a big story. Like, mm-hmm. why, why are you covering this? Because this happens in Korean yeah. nightclubs all over the place, and this is still happening. So, so what's the angle? Oh God! <laughs> and so that was a real. That was a moment of kind of wow. This is so much more yeah. widespread than I realized. And there were there were lots wow. of moments like that where I was, I was kind of shocked by how how widespread the abuse is really, and yeah. how accepting mm-hmm. people are of it which is even even sadder. Yeah, so sad. So can we talk a little bit about these merchandisers, even their job? Like you have to explain it in the podcast, right? Because it's a very specific role that they have that I don't think we have. We definitely don't have it in the UK. Um, but I'm not even very sure that, you know, I, I haven't heard of it in, in, in China or in Hong Kong. So it just seemed to be quite a specific Korean role that these people had. So I don't you want to just explain a bit more about that. Yeah. So 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 they're called merchandisers, these employees. And, and lots of nightclubs have these merchandisers, MD for short. And their job is to ensure that the club is full of customers. So what they'll do is they'll post on social media or they'll call people up and they'll try and get people in the club. And for every customer that comes in the club, they get a, a sort of commission. Yeah. And mm. they also will get commission for how much money some of these customers spend in the club. And so you get some MDs who are super successful who will bring in, you know, over 100 customers a night. Right. And um, and there are a lot of these MDs and sometimes customers turn into MDs because these clubs are extremely expensive. And so to fund your club going, you may then start bringing in other customers to help pay wow. for your own evening oh, wow. in the club right so it's quite bizarre but but so what you really want is to ensure that the highest paid vip customers come in and spend lots and lots of money so that you can get a percentage of that yeah and so mm-hmm. it's in your interest to keep the customer happy yes and for the, the most high rolling customers there's an expectation that if i'm going to spend this much money this is male customers we're talking about if i'm going to spend this much money in the club then i should have sex it's an expectation you know I will get laid tonight yes and so if that doesn't happen organically I just meet a girl in the club and it just happens and I'm lucky enough that somebody finds me attractive and and wants to spend the evening with me then um the club may help with that in some way Uh, so these club employees were telling me that on occasions they were aware of the fact that these merchandisers were selling date rape drugs 
to the customers and helping them to drug the women. That's was so shocking. And sending photographs to potential customers of women who are passed out saying, look, these women are ready for you. We've prepared them so that you can come to the club and, and have them. Um, so really, really shocking things. Yeah. Um, I mean, also having said all of this, Burning Sun Nightclub closed after all of these scandals, but only one MD was ever charged. Only one person was ever charged in relation to the abuse of women in the club. Yeah. And that was an MD who had filmed a rape, a customer, his customer raping a, a, a woman, a drugged woman on his phone. The customer wasn't charged. Uh, I don't know if they ever identified the victim in that case, but the man who had filmed it was charged yeah. um, and got off with a suspended sentence as, as far as I remember. Right. Yeah. But nobody else was charged for any of this. And, and, in, and in the podcast, you explain that that situation in Korean law is considered quasi-rape. Because, you know, you had mentioned that there are like really different distinctions, you know, under Korean law. And yeah, so it took me quite a long time to work this out. So I, I, I found out that some of these K-pop stars who were prosecuted and charged, prosecuted and, and found guilty and sentenced for these crimes um, of having sex with unconscious women were charged with something called quasi-rape, quasi-rape. And I just couldn't understand what that meant so in English it kind of sounds like semi-rape yeah. like rapish yes right. kind of like rape right. yeah yeah or something it's just like it's not a thing you either rape someone or you don't you know what is this thing and people were saying it's when a woman's unconscious and I was like but what difference does that make I right. couldn't understand it you know you're you know you're yeah. raping somebody whether they're conscious or unconscious yeah. I don't get it and then I was, it was explained to me actually by um, a, a female politician in Korea who is trying, she's battling to change the law at the moment because the rape law in Korea describes rape as a violent act, an act of violence perpetrated against somebody. It doesn't have anything to do with the concept of consent. So it's, it's about a woman being forced, mm. having sex forced upon her, yes. which means if she doesn't fight back in any way yeah. or struggle against what's happening to her physically, then it's not automatically considered rape. So they had to come up with a new term for a woman who is unconscious and doesn't have the means to fight back in any way or struggle. And so they came up with this term quasi-rape which is when a woman isn't able to fight back or resist in any way, it's quasi-rape. So I, I was shocked by the idea that consent yeah. is, is just not even yeah. that was a thing crazy. in, in yeah. the rape law. And there is a whole, there is a whole movement in, in Korean politics right now to change that. Um, there's, it's, it's quite a live debate in Korea right now. There are people who are trying to change the law, but there's a lot of resistance. Yeah, yeah I could imagine. Yeah. Um, back to the to the merchandisers because I think there's a scene in Taxi Driver where the K-pop the K-pop star he's kind of in his VIP room that is glass fronted and he looks down on the dance floor and he just basically like selects a woman and just says I'll have that one and then later we see her getting drugged and taken off to a VIP room and I remember watching that thinking like that's kind of a dramatic telling of a story but then you know, when I read about it and then when I listened to your podcast, I was like, shoot, that is actually really, they're basically making it, yeah, just showing you exactly how it might work. It does happen. Yeah. 
So the other thing that I found really shocking was the prevalence of sky cams, like so prevalent uh, to the point that you could actually go to a shop and buy a cover for these things. So I wasn't quite sure how how it worked. Could you explain a bit more about how how these spy cams? So, so there's I'll tell you what. I So it was because I didn't know very much about it. Um, there was a bit that never made it into the podcast in the end. But I I invited a, a man whose job it is to detect spy cams to my hotel room. Oh. And so he came and actually checked my hotel room for spy Wow. <laughs> and in doing that, I was able to understand um, how it works, what he was looking for, how he checks for them. And he actually brought some examples of spy cams that he's found before. Oh, right. And it was a real learning curve for me. So he put a whole load of objects on the table in, in my hotel room uh-huh. and said, can you find the spy cams? And it was just like a box of tissues. <gasps> or a plug that fits in a socket or a mirror oh, and you wow. just can't see them. Oh, I mean, they're gosh. invisible. That's the whole point, right? Yeah. It, you really have to, it's, it's, it's like the head of a pin. It's yeah. so small. And wow. so he's got specific light that he shines on them and they, and, and they reflect and right. he's able to detect mm-hmm. them. Okay. He's also got kind of antenna and he can pick up the signals that these things give off as they're, as they're, projecting the signal back to the receiver somewhere Mm -hmm. and so um that was just fascinating for me and and I guess the thing that's really interesting about it which was something else that was a learning curve for me so quite early on when I picked up this story I I read a lot because there has been some coverage in the media about this spy cam culture in in Korea Mm -hmm. um was the fact that you don't have to be a, a, a literal victim of this spy cam technology to be a victim. Korean women are constantly frightened. So whether or not they've ever become a victim to this, they walk around with the fear of it. Yes. And and that's kind of screwed up. You know, they worry about using toilets in public places. They worry about changing rooms. They worry about being upskirted on the train. And it's constantly in the back of their minds. You know, will I go out wearing a skirt or should I, is it just better off wearing, am I better off wearing trousers? Mm. Um, Maybe I shouldn't have another drink tonight because I might need to use the toilet before I get home. You know, Mm. it's that kind of thing that it's, it's so ingrained for Korean women to think in this way. And, and that's really kind of screwed up. Yeah. I mean, I have to say after after I listened to the series I actually had a few times when I was out in a public toilet thinking like I felt like there wasn't going to be any but I remember thinking like if I was in Korea having listened to this series I would just be so freaked out just using this toilet because also in you know in later in the podcast you you actually you know uh, your producer actually shows you potentially where they would be and it's she's just so knowledgeable about it so it's almost like it's not even like it happens but you have to then become a mini expert on spying looking out for where they would potentially have them and and to just carry that all the time exactly I mean it happened to me right so while I was out there having done all these interviews about this stuff there's a moment where I stopped to use the toilet in a metro station and I just have a massive paranoia moment where I'm like oh my god oh my god there's a weird thing there and then I just have these flashes in my head of like you know 
YouTube videos saying BBC reporter makes series about spy cams and gets spy cammed. Look at her taking a wee. Yeah. And I just thought, God, it would just be so horrific. Oh and God. I, you know, it's awful. Yeah. It's just awful. It's a moment where you're at your most vulnerable and at your most private, where you really just want to have a moment behind a closed door. And the idea that somebody could intrude on that is awful and yes. horrible. Um, and yes, and so I call my my producer Lee Hyun in and I'm like, is this a spy cam? And I think she said something like, no, 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 that's a, a sensor or a, a smoke alarm or something. And, and I said, but how, how do you know? And she said, look, spy cams are just holes. You can't see them, they're holes. But what you do see, and she showed me later that there are there are tiny holes and gaps in in any kind of toilet which have been stuffed up by women mm -hmm. with tissue paper. They put toilet paper in these holes and gaps because they're worried. Right, there yeah. might be a spy cam in there that they can't see. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy how this is something that is that all Korean women suffer with, really. Yeah. Oh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Very strange. I have to say, it does also happen in Japan, but as far as I understand it, not to the same extent as in Korea. So in Korea, there's a whole unit of um, the Metropolitan Police Force in Seoul, which is dedicated just to looking for spy cams. Yeah. So, you know, there's a specialist unit for this. I didn't realize so that. It's not like the Korean state isn't trying to do something about this. They are. Yeah. yeah. Um, they've, you know, they've got this unit. But, um, but yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's a it's a thing and there's adverts everywhere on the tube as well warning men you know it's now since the k-pop scandal um and and these these k-pop stars were, were charged and found guilty it's now become a crime at the time it wasn't a crime to consume spy cam footage oh. so as long as you hadn't taken it or shared it if somebody had sent you a video of this or you'd found it online it was not a crime to look at it and, oh. and enjoy it. Now it is a crime to even just consume it. Oh, wow. So the law has changed, which is a big change. That is, yeah. And so there are warnings yeah. everywhere in the tube saying, you know, taking this footage, but also consuming it is a crime. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I had no idea there was a specialized unit in the police force to look for these spy cams, but I did notice, like, because I was recently in Korea at Seoul Station, um, I saw in each like bathroom stall, there was a little notice at the bottom saying, you know, th this area is being monitored um, and and scanned for spy cams. And I think it was yeah. to put women's minds more at ease, like so that they're not freaked out every moment that they're using the toilet. I, I guess just, you know, to let us know we're working on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've checked these toilets, they're clean, Right. you know. Um, that's right. And actually the guy who came and checked my hotel room said the major the overwhelming majority of places he checks for spy cams don't have spy cams in them. Mm -hmm. But what he's selling in a way is peace of mind right. as well. Yeah. So people may have um, work done on their property, on their house or their apartment in, in, in Korea and have all sorts of workmen in. And then particularly if they're women living on their own, mm -hmm. they might want him to just go in and check. Yeah. afterwards that there's been nothing left behind and most of the time he won't find anything but the women then feel at ease and comfortable um right. i mean this this thing has been called an epidemic by uh human rights watch even um you know uh the 
a former president of uh, Korea called it a, a real issue that women have to face in their daily lives. So there is awareness that this is going mm-hmm. on. And I think there are, you know, the government's taken some steps to try and tackle it. Yeah. 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 And it has been featured in K-dramas. It has like, <laughs> I have yeah. seen it in, I think it was yep. in Mad About. Yep each other where it was it or she had that yellow lamp anyway. oh, it makes it into the plots it makes yes, it into the plot um it, it made it into the plot uh, in business proposal too didn't it oh that's the one i'm thinking of with the yellow yeah. lamp yes yeah. the lamp right the which gift, is so bis- quote-unquote the gift, gift yeah. the neighbor yeah. yeah that's it yeah so business proposal chloe is actually a really fluffy rom-com it's just a like a 12 episode <laughs> so it's not a hard-hitting you know, hard-hitting, like, topical social kind of drama. It's actually a, a – and it, yeah, you're right, Grace, it was – that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, I mean, so in, in the Human Rights Watch report about this particular subject, there's this incredible story about a woman who's given a gift by her boss, a clock. Right. I don't know whether it's oh. based on this, but she's given she, – she, so this is a real – story that human rights watch interviewed this woman she's given a clock by her boss as a gift and it's got a spy cam in it that's horrible and he's watching her in her bedroom over months and months before she discovers what's going on um really eerie and and spooky and and i i actually this also didn't make it into the podcast but a woman that i had met previously um in korea was a journalist who was covering um the anti-spy camp protests so in 2018 um 2019 there were protests that erupted on the streets of seoul massive protests tens of thousands of women who came out with signs saying my life is not your porn. Mm-hmm. Anti-spy cam protests, so women protesting against this culture of spy camming. And this this friend that I had I had met on a previous occasion in Korea before I was covering this subject, she's a journalist and she was covering this story and interviewing loads of spy cam victims. And she had coincidentally moved out of home and moved into an apartment. Uh, it was her first time living outside of her family home. And she had chosen an apartment on the 26th, 27th floor of a block of flats, very deliberately, because she felt safe up there. Yeah. And um, one night, as she was about to fall asleep, lying in bed, the doorbell rings, and she goes and answers the door, and it's a police officer, and he shows her a video. And it's a video of her walking around her apartment naked. Oh, Oh, my God. And she couldn't understand. She couldn't, at the beginning, compute how it was possible that somebody had filmed her, because there were no apartments anywhere near hers. And it ended up that this person was, this man had been standing on the roof of a building really quite far away using a long lens camera. Oh my God. And she said at the time she had bleach blonde hair. So it was very obvious it was her walking around her apartment. And she felt so violated by this, particularly because the police were not able to tell her the identity of this man. So she could never find out who he was. And so in the end, she she moved out of her apartment and moved out of the neighborhood because he knew who she was, but she didn't know who he was. Oh my God. And he ended up getting off. This was not his first first, um, time getting caught spy camming. He had done it previously, but he got off because he explained to the judge that he felt very remorseful about this and that he had a new job and a new fiance. And if he were prosecuted, it would disrupt his life. And so the judge said, well, we don't want to disrupt your life. (sighs) 
bizarrely. Uh, her life, though, was very disruptive because she uh, was forced to lose the deposit on her yeah. apartment and she never went back to her apartment. She got her stuff and left and yeah. got friends to go and empty the rest of the apartment oh for gosh. her and move to a different neighbourhood. Wow. The patriarchy in action. Indeed. Wow. So that's another thing is that the courts, the courts are, um, you know, don't seem to be stamping down on these crimes quite as hard as women would like as the victims would like and so in many many cases the victims feel that perpetrators get away with very light sentences non-custodial sentences a slap on the wrist and a fine possibly and there's no real incentive stop these men do you know a disincentive from these men to do it you know and so they continue sometimes more than once so this person it was his second time doing this and again he seemed to sort of get away with it wow that's very disheartening yeah I mean I think that's it's also true all over that yes UK our prosecution laws for rape are terrible absolutely so you know its career isn't unique in that sense right and that's that's if women you know even report it because I mean exactly or victims rather since it's not always women but yeah and in Korea I think there's particularly a very sort of shame focused culture and particularly towards women, because there, there are lots and lots of sections of Korean society that are still incredibly conservative. It feels like this very, very modern futuristic place. Right. And you kind of make assumptions about it also being quite progressive in it, the way in its social attitudes towards women. And it's not the case. Right. Yeah. Women are often expected to be kind of virginal. And um, and so any kind of indication that a woman has had sexual partners outside of wedlock is often quite shaming for her socially and can impact her social life, but can also impact her employment and all kinds of, all kinds of things. And so it's um, female victims quite often just won't go to the authorities for fear of being outed. Wow. So this was all, this was all news to me. You know, I always imagined career as this incredibly futuristic place and I just assume you know when you're you know Koreans are amazingly well educated far better educated than Brits or Americans and so you assume that with education and um, economic prosperity that all these other things would necessarily happen like a kind of social progressiveness yes and it just doesn't work that way you know we see in America now abortion laws are uh, reversing and you know so it doesn't always work that economics economic prosperity and education mean that people are more progressive and that human rights automatically follow and particularly as women that's something that um we have to fight for separately from those other things so we were talking about the merchandisers or these mds at the burning sun nightclub um and whilst they themselves drew the line at drugging the clients they clearly also had misogynistic attitudes themselves um uh, so did you get a sense of where that came from? Was this this brand of extreme feminists that you, you know, the, the, the self-described from the Nazis that might have blown out proportion? Or was this just kind of more just their standards for what they think is acceptable behaviour in clubs and women's standards of what is acceptable in clubs are just totally different? So, no, it wasn't. It wasn't broadly the women in the clubs that they thought were to blame. They, they have this um, this sense that, the feminist movement in Korea has made men mistrust women. Right. In the same way that women now don't trust men. Mm. Lots of women that I spoke to said, you know, we are worried that men may be, if they're not filming women, then they're con- 
um, they're consuming this kind of spy camp one, or they may be. And so I, I you know, I, I'm afraid to have a relationship with a Korean man because I don't know what he'll be like. I think lots of Korean men mistrust Korean women because of the feminist movement, which they see less as, um, you know, uh, helping to boost women's rights, but rather impinge on their rights. So um, this didn't make it into the podcast, but I spoke to some young Korean men um, who are friends of, of my Korean producer, in fact. So just a, a kind of random selection of guys mm. who and it seems that this is quite a widespread idea that there is a big risk to korean women men there's a big risk to korean men of women falsely accusing them of rape right mm. and this seems to be a, a a general widespread fear for korean men and i i i've seen no evidence of this that this is a widespread phenomenon yeah. i mean just like anywhere it must yes. happen occasionally but actually when you look at how difficult it is to get somebody prosecuted for sexually assaulting you in Korea it seems unlikely that there would be a massive movement of women doing this yes. to men and yeah. so but men have this mistrust and so these young men that I interviewed said um, you know one of the ways that we protect ourselves from this happening is if we go with a Korean woman to a, um, a hotel for the night. So quite often people still live at home with their families and they may, if they decide to spend the evening with a boyfriend, girlfriend, they may go to a hotel instead where you pay by the hour or pay by the evening. And um, they say, we, we get her to pay with her credit card so that she can't say later that she didn't consent. And I said, well, that would prove that she agreed to go to the hotel, but not necessarily that she agreed yeah. to have sex. And he was a bit yes. stumped by this. Um, <laughs> So, so there's this constant fear that Korean women might be feminists and might be in some way trying to prove that they are abusers. So all men, in a way, feel like they're accused of being potential abusers yes. by Korean women and Korean feminists. So mm. it's, it's, it's really sad that there is this feeling that I got in Korea that there is this massive mistrust between men and women, a mm. gulf that seems, a chasm that seems to be growing, um, that Korean women think Korean men are potential abusers and Korean men think that Korean women are accusing them of being abusers, even though they might yeah. not be. And so there's this constant gulf that that is growing chasm that's growing wider and wider. Mm. So um, what I heard from several young Korean men that I spoke to, it seems to be a sort of wider feeling is that also Korean women are now entering the marketplace in, you know, hopefully trying to push for a more fair playing field. I mean, Korean women actually in education now outstrip men. So Korean women mm. tend to get better results than Korean men and they go into the employment yes. field. They are not, so Korean men have to take out two years to go to um, mandatory military right. service. The country is still officially at war. So every male has to go and do mandatory military service. And so men feel like I've, I've lost two years out of my career mm -hmm. and these women finish school or university with better results than me and they're stealing our jobs and they're getting they're okay. also getting um you know there are quotas sometimes where organizations or sections of um government and civil service are told you know you need to fulfill quotas of women there needs to be 30 percent 40 percent women where there's 10 15 20 percent women you need to be employing yeah. more women mm -hmm. men feel that that it's unfair to them. Of yeah. course, when a woman has a, a kid, 
she <laughs> tends to take right. time out. So the two years for mandatory military service is kind of balanced out <laughs> by maternity leave, you would think. But right. anyway, I'm just saying this is the general feeling of hostility yeah. of, from men towards women as yes, well. Absolutely. That they feel that women are getting special treatment. That's not fair. Right. I um, That actually <laughs> reminds me of a conversation I had with... Um, yeah. A, um, a guide that that took my family to like alpaca world and stuff like that when I was in Korea recently. Um, he actually brought up exactly this thing. He said, you know, it's not fair. You know, women aren't having babies anymore. So like some people are talking about how women should be conscripted also. So that would be more equal, you know, but the way that he worded it, where he kind of tied it to the fact that they weren't having babies um, seemed really, you know. They, they should be. So they should be productive in another way in society since they're not contribute. They're not <laughs> right. making babies. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I mean, I mean so, so in some societies, women do go. So in Israel, right. women do military service, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. And and men complain about the law in Korea. That means that only men go for military service, but men drew up that law, not women. <laughs> exactly. So. And I I wanted to you know bring this up to this this guide, but I was like, no, I'd rather just kind of sit back and hear about mm. what he thinks because you know I have my opinions and I'm not going to change his. <laughs> um, but this is is really. Um, interesting uh instructive like what kind yeah. of attitudes yeah. there are it's um, it's, it's fascinating of, but yeah. also i you know i found yeah. it quite sad actually that this gulf that is growing and growing um yes of mistrust right just so, massive mistrust yes um it is an yeah. issue but i mean you know like you mentioned sarah there are these there are these radical feminists they are a tiny tiny percentage of, of feminists again um you know, yeah. I think the majority of feminists that I've spoken to in a lot of the feminist movements are not man haters. And yet there is this tiny group, um, WOMAD, mm -hmm. where they call themselves femi-Nazis and man haters. And they right. are avowed uh, to perpetrate violence towards men. Right. At least that's what they say on their yeah. website, which is pretty shocking. It is. It's and and I I read that they actually uh, splintered off of the Megalia group because Megalia had had um, cracked down on um, anti LGBT language and um, and trans right and trans anti trans language and WOMAD they're they're you know both radical because they you know are you know want to perpetrate violence but also because they're turfs um so exactly yeah, exactly yeah so Megalia kind of d d fell apart and got torn up by these arguments about LGBT and the turf war and all of that right. and so kind of collapsed under that and then WOMAD was born out of the ashes of that um as as the sort of radical wing of Megalia that went off on their own yeah I think lots of feminists that I spoke to who aren't like that who aren't so radical or um you know violent in their language feel that WOMAD has, has caused them problems yeah. Oh, yeah. because it's given feminists a bad name Absolutely. and it's, it's made their fight that much harder yeah, yeah. so for me that. the the suicide of the k-pop stars um Kuhara and uh Suri were were really um among the most heartbreaking parts of your story for you know, I mean, the whole thing was heartbreaking, really. There's so many sad, sad parts. But do you feel like 
any lessons have been learned from their their tragic deaths or do you feel like k-pop star female k-pop stars especially are facing kind of the same pressures even now as far as i can see i, I mean so there are there are ways in which things have changed a bit so one way is that um now stories to do with um news stories or or articles online to do with sexual abuse um don't have a comment section anymore oh, right. yeah. so a lot of the anger and hatred and victim blaming that came from the anti-feminist movement mm -hmm. towards victims of sexual violence and spy cam cases um, has been stopped on, 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 at least under articles. You may still find it online on different forums. Yeah. Um, so that's one, one sort of important way where things have changed. For me, the story was really shocking because to me it sort of underlined the fact that it didn't matter where you sat in Korean society as a woman. You could be ostensibly mm. um, somebody that looked like they had quite a lot of power I mean, Kuhara was a massive star. Uh, you know, she was such a strong part of society. Sully too, they were really kind of, um, as far as I could see, part of the mainstream in Korea um, and really beloved by so many people. So they were, they had uh, economic means, they had friends, they had people in high places supporting them, and yet they were still victims and, and got to a place where they felt so out of control and out of their depth that they took their own lives. So, um, you know, for me, that was the big lesson that it doesn't matter where you sit in Korean society as a woman, you can still be a victim in kind of in the same way, except for them, it was worse because it was also public um, and so yeah. humiliating. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the lessons learned are. For me, it was such a kind of, such a, 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 an insightful moment when I was talking to my producer about this. And she said to me, you know, when they died, I felt like I was kind of to blame. And I think lots of Korean women felt mm. like they were to blame because we saw this happening to them. We yeah. saw them being trolled. We saw them being gaslit. We ah. saw this stuff going on and we didn't, fight hard enough on their behalf we should have pushed back for them in their name as women and we didn't do it enough and I think yeah for my producer at least she feels that had she if she could have her time again she would have liked to have have, have you know stood up for these women right. and I think she says that lots yeah. of her friends feel the same way that they they feel like they would have stood up for them more now I don't know I don't know whether in today's career something similar might go on and whether women would would sort of mount more of a defense of female stars who are getting trolled publicly. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the really tragic thing was that Sully, at the time of her death, was actually taking part in a show all about how terrible it is to be trolled as a celebrity. Oh. So, you know, just weeks yeah. before her death, she was on TV talking about how most of her career she's been horribly trolled. Um, and so I think even the sort of cathartic experience of talking about it publicly seems that it, it maybe it wasn't enough. Yeah, right. And I think for me as well, what really stuck with me as well was that it was so brave of Guhara to come out and try to bring her boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend, sorry, mm -hmm. to justice. 
and then even that failed her like she it must have taken so much courage to to effectively you know come out with this and and expose herself and be vulnerable and and the ending you know she didn't get the ending that she she should have gotten deserved what we don't say is that actually after her death her brother continued her struggle and appealed the original verdict and her her boyfriend was actually sentenced in the end oh so yeah yeah, so he he did get the the brother continued the fight Mm -hmm. after after her death on appeal and um and uh the the ex-boyfriend did receive a conviction but it didn't happen in guhara's lifetime unfortunately for her she saw the legal system as having failed her yeah 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 exactly that which which then brings me on to the other question i had which was that it seemed to me that for the crimes that they were committed that the sentences were quite light um and for sun lee specifically he actually didn't get convicted for for some of the things that did happen like things like embezzlement and prostitution um whereas obviously the victims will be living with this all of their lives um and as, as we've discussed you know, discussed previously this is not just in south korea this is a global phenomenon of, of kind of bringing people to justice but did you find this in the concluding episode that this was kind of one of the things that was quite depressing about this story was just the the sense of justice not prevailing. I think that's what lots of the victims felt. And having spoken to people yeah. surrounding this case, lots of them felt it wasn't fair. So, for example, um, Che Jin Hun had his sentence, I think, cut by uh, 50% halved because he expressed remorse in the courtroom and apologised to his victim and the victim accepted the apology. Mm. And so his, his sentence was cut in half. I don't think... That, I mean, I, I'm sure that remorse plays a part in the sentencing of most um, criminals around the world. But to the extent of halving a sentence, of it only being a couple of yeah. years behind bars, um, it does feel like the sentences were light. And I know that lots of people involved in the case on behalf of the victims and on the side of the victims felt like it wasn't fair, mm. but it should have been longer. Another thing that actually... Um, didn't make it into the podcast that I thought was really interesting. I just didn't have time to tell um, about all the things that I experienced in Korea. So I, I went and spoke to um, a re- rehabilitation, sexual offenders rehabilitation oh, unit right. and a woman who devises the courses that these sex offenders have to undergo. Mm. Um, so the Korean government is trying to do stuff um, and it has created this course for sex offenders and these these pop stars these Korean pop stars would have had to undergo these courses where they it's a bit like Alcoholics Anonymous like plastic chairs Mm. sitting in a circle saying presumably my name is Chung Jun Young and I am responsible for quasi-rape or whatever it is and then they talk amongst themselves about their crimes and or this is the idea yeah and that they help to realize that their victims are human beings who have, you know, have, have suffered. Yes. Not objects, not sexual objects. Right. Um, but it's impossible to know how successful these programs are. There's no monitoring of recidivism. Overall recidivism of sex, sex offenders is pretty bad right. in Korea. I can't mm-hmm. remember the stats off the top of my head, but a large percentage of sexual offenders go on to reoffend. Yeah. So um, it's not great. Yeah. So another question I wanted to ask was like just really struck by how brave 
the female journalists were in this story. And I think you mentioned it at the top of the show. It feels to me this isn't a coincidence that these things were uncovered by female journalists, mm-hmm. right? This is actually a story that uh, kind of broke because of their bravery. Um, and do, do you feel that that was definitely part of why this story came came to light? Definitely, definitely. And as a journalist, I have to say, I had huge admiration for these women. I mean, in the first episode, you hear that... that um, the journalist Park, who um, who wrote the first story about Chung, suffered. And I, I, I mean, I knew she'd been trolled. It was, she was really hard to track down, I have to say. So I couldn't find her anywhere. It's, it's really unusual for, as a journalist, you allow yourself to be found mm-hmm. because you hope that people will come to you with their stories and um, you have a public profile and she, she there's no email of her anywhere. There's no like uh, social media account. There was not, I was like, is this woman... She's like a ghost. Uh, yeah. And the reason is because she was trolled so viciously. And so when I met her, I knew she had been trolled, but I, I couldn't believe it when she told me what she had suffered um, in terms of the sexual trolling that she suffered yeah. and the fact that it went on for three years. I mean, that is just... That was... So, like, as a journalist, we expose ourselves to a certain extent, but I don't think I've ever covered a story where I've exposed myself in the same way that these journalists expose themselves. And in covering a story about sexual violence, they were so exposed to, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, uh, abuse, sexual abusive trolling, in a sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I had huge admiration for them because I think that, they knew, or Park didn't realise, but but um, I think Kang did know that this was likely to happen to her, and yet she pursued the story. Um, and something that didn't come into the podcast in the end is that Kang has a young daughter, and part of her motivation was feeling, what kind of career do I want my daughter to grow up in? You know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I want to yeah. change this country. I love this country, and I want to change it for the better so that young girls yeah. like my daughter will live in a in in a society free of this abuse um and so that was her real motivation and so they were incredibly brave and she was brave and she suffered horrifically um yes uh you know she's a very beautiful woman and sort of very i have to say every time i saw her i felt like a total frump because i'm a radio journalist i never really worry about what i look like i face for radio (laughs) And she's just incredibly glamorous and really well turned out and super fashionable. And um, and so lots of these trolls would have conversations yeah. about like, how can she be so beautiful and a femi bitch at the same time? I mean, they would literally say this stuff on, I, I saw so many comments, derogatory comments, horrifically derogatory comments about her. So yeah, and she still suffers this stuff. If you look on Twitter or somewhere like that, you'll find these comments about her still circulating. Um, wow. Particularly fans of Sung Lee yeah. who still feel that because he wasn't charged with um, the quasi-rape crimes and the Molka crimes that in some way, or he was charged with one Molka crime actually, with sharing a photograph of naked women, um, but because he wasn't charged with sexual abuse crimes that in some way he's less less guilty or that he, the story involved him too much. Mm-hmm that these other people's bad names sullied his name when he's actually less guilty or less bad, even though he was uh, convicted of these prostitution crimes and embezzlement and tax crimes Mm. and all sorts of other stuff. So he's 
he was found guilty of uh, helping to organize um, uh, people involved in organized crime to intimidate people he didn't like, a bit like a gangster. Mm. So he was found guilty of lots of different things, but he still yes. has a very strong fan base, particularly internationally. Mm. And these people have been trolling Kang for years. Wow. So, yeah, it, they're, they're incredibly brave, these female journalists, I think. But I think it had to be female journalists because, I mean, Kang was able yeah. to contact victims and have conversations right. with them in a way that I think would have been much harder for a male journalist to do. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and brought their own experiences as well, right, with them. So, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think also you must have been emotionally so strong as well to cover this this story. Um, I think with everything that happened in Guhara was kind of effectively it happened during while you were breaking the story, right? And then obviously I think I was also struck by when you said in the podcast that you're not going to go into all of the content you saw. Um, you only gave us a snapshot of what, you know, you did see. So obviously you must have had to... You must have had to see so many things that you will never be able to unsee um, in covering the story. It's true. I mean, this happens so as journalists. We subject ourselves to some of this anyway. You know, in covering Syria, I've seen horrific videos mm -hmm. of beheadings and all kinds of stuff that stay with you and affect you. And this story was kind of similar. You know, I saw videos of horrific sexual abuse and rape and women drugged and... Um, and reading these messages. So we've got a sort of um, a, a specific person who deals with taste and decency on the BBC right. um, and who I have to run everything past to say, mm -hmm. is this okay to broadcast? Mm -hmm. And I had to remove a lot of the, um, the, you know, we broadcast some of the cacao chat conversations between these K-pop stars. Wow. But they're very sanitized, the versions that we've, broadcast it was a lot worse a lot more graphic a lot more sexual and um and we decided that you know uh, both for the victims actually but also for the audience we were going to give you a taster of what was in these messages but we couldn't in good conscience put on the radio um uh the the full conversations because they were really really grim and and really just made clear how these women were not human beings yeah. these men they really weren't and that's what was so shocking about it um yeah and this stuff stays with you it's hard yeah. to to unsee stuff you've seen you know um i know lee Hyun, my korean producer was really affected yeah. by this as well we all were so um it, it it takes its toll but that's why you know you feel that um it an obligation to to do the story justice um particularly Absolutely. for the victims yeah. involved well thank you and thank obviously thank the thank your korean production team for yes. for bringing the story you've talked a lot about the things that didn't go in the podcast were there any other topics or stories you had wanted to include but perhaps couldn't for time reasons cover i i think the two that really stand out for me was this conversation that both these young men and also the male politician chair in ho who i interviewed they found the concept of including consent in the rape laws absolutely bizarre. Wow. They were saying, but how would this work? I mean, it's just completely unrealistic. How, what would you like be forced to draw up a contract with a woman before you have sex? I mean, I mean, how, it just isn't, it's not practical. And I wanted to say, well, lots of us in countries where this is the law find it very practical and normal but they found it absolutely so bizarre and um they couldn't imagine it 
Um, so I thought that was really interesting, but we weren't able to, to include it for time uh, constraints. And also the, um, the rehab centre, which I just found fascinating. And I, I had a sort of wobbly moment in the rehab centre as well, where I went to the toilet and suddenly realised, oh my God, so many people convicted of spy cam crimes come through this building <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as I came out and said to her, you do monitor the toilets. And she was laughing. She said, oh, we never thought of that. They wouldn't dare do something like that here. <laughs> wow. I hope we gave a good snapshot and taster of, of the story without those bits in it. And you absolutely did. Yeah, it was it was wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Chloe, for taking the time and speaking to us. I found it, thanks for having I me. I found it fascinating. So it's almost mm -hmm. like we've got the like the story behind absolutely. the pod and the extra stuff. It's like the extra bonus pod. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chloe. It's lovely to have a chance to tell these stories. Thanks Definitely. so much, guys. No, thank you for coming and, and taking the time out. It's so, so lovely to have a chance to talk about all this stuff. <laughs> I have a chance to talk about it. So, especially when we cut stuff out and it's like, I wish I could tell people about this stuff. So it's great to have it in there somewhere. So there we have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed the show. Sorry it was longer, but we, we really enjoyed our conversation with Chloe and we wanted to include pretty much everything she said. So I'm hoping that you did enjoy the the Burning Sun episodes on BBC Sounds. And if you still haven't listened to it by the end of this podcast, do um, go and check it out. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed our pod. Follow us on our Instagram at Afternoona Asks or our website, www.afternoonaasks.com. To get more K-drama content from A Writer's Lens, follow our sister pod, Afternoon of Delight. For any BTS fans out there, our other sister pod, Afternoon Army, is here for all your needs. If you want to hang with us and other K-drama fans, consider joining us on Afternoon of Delight Patreon. There are different levels for you to access. Go to www.afternoonofdelightpodcast.com to sign up. Finally, if you have any questions for us, please feel free to contact us via our socials or our email, afternoonaasks at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, 다음에 또 만나요.